Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Unrivaled talk, Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The independent republic of Mike Graham. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on uh, Talk TV. It is, of course, Monday morning. It is a bit chilly. There is a big freeze coming. But, hey, uh, it is winter. After all, it is the middle of January. These things do happen. Uh, I've got a few concerns this morning. Some of them uh, I will be elucidating upon as the morning progresses. First of all, this. Uh, There was a drive-by shooting in London at the weekend. Let me just explain that to you one more time. I believe it was Saturday afternoon. Uh, There was a funeral taking place in an area of London called Euston, uh, which is where an awful lot of people come uh, by train from various parts of the north of England uh, to visit London uh, and to go to points south, east, west uh, and and, and, and north maybe even sometimes. But hey, here's the thing. The newspapers this morning are acting as though it didn't happen. There's a seven-year-old girl fighting for her life. There are several other people who were shot uh, by shotgun pellets being shot out of a car. It turns out uh, that the connection to the funeral uh, is the Colombian drug cartel uh, known as the Cali cartel. A convicted member of that cartel uh, was the father um, and the brother, uh, or sorry, the father and the husband of two of the women whose memorial service was going on. We don't yet know precisely what happened. Somebody's been arrested, so we can't get into the detail of what may have happened that day. But a drive-by shooting in the middle of the afternoon in the capital city of this country And instead, we've got headlines about the NHS and what Keir Starmer wants to do with it and the fact that, you know, most people actually don't think it's very good. Well, I don't think it's very good either, but I've been saying that for about two years. It's hardly front page news, is it? Also, uh, let me ask you about the flooding situation in this country. Roads are being flooded constantly because of rain. We live in the Northern Hemisphere. We live in North Europe. We live in a place where it rains a lot. And yet somehow our infrastructure can't deal with it. Roads are being closed all over the place. I saw probably about 15 roads closed uh, in Sussex this weekend alone. What's it like where you are? Why are the roads so bad? We'll be talking about that. And speaking about net zero and the climate madness in Scotland, right? They've gone completely stark, staring, bonkers mad. They have decided that come June of this year, and that is only four months away, basically, 
They are going to be banning petrol cars and diesel cars from the centre of Glasgow. That's 1.2 million vehicles. People won't be able to go to work. People won't be able to do their work. People won't be able to make deliveries. How exactly is this going to save the planet? They're going to roll it out to Edinburgh, to Aberdeen and to Dundee next year. Has Nicola Sturgeon lost the plot? I think we all know the answer to that. We'll be talking to Ben Habib, uh, former MEP, chairman of Brexit Watch, of course, as well. We'll talk to him uh, about all manner of things. And of course, later today, as if we weren't in enough trouble, the teachers are going to have a strike ballot and they're going to tell us whether they're going to go on strike. That's right. The people who get 13 weeks holiday a year. There's something going wrong in the public sector. There are people telling me all the time that if they work in the public sector, they do such difficult jobs that they can't do them anymore. It's too stressful. It's too difficult. It's not well enough paid. Well, go and find another job then. And that's what they're all doing. Why go into it in the first place? That would be another question for me. 0344 499 1000. There's lots going on. There's lots to talk about. Many stories from the weekend, of course. We might even mention the European Union once or twice. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Monday morning, it is a bit chilly, it's a bit damp, it's a bit squalid out there, there's a bit of snow in some parts. But you know what? I rather like cold weather at this time of the year and I don't think we should be put off by it whatsoever. We're sort of into the middle of January. Some people call this Blue Monday because apparently it's the day when everybody gets depressed. Really? Well, I'm not any more depressed today than I would be any other day. There's plenty of good news to look at. There's plenty of good stories to talk about. We're going to try not to talk about that dreadful, dreadful, dreadful bloke uh, who lives in California. We're not going to do it. We're just not. Uh, let's talk instead to Ben Habib, who is former MEP, chairman of Brexit Watch, of course. Ben, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Now, um, I don't know where to begin today, but I think we have to start with a serious note about the crime levels in this country, because Sadiq Khan spent a lot of the weekend banging on about climate change and how it was the most important thing that he had to tackle. Uh, last week, he was talking about rejoining the European Union uh, and making sure that London had its own immigration policy. Well, interestingly enough, I think what he should be addressing is how on earth, in the middle of a Saturday afternoon funeral, somebody can drive past a crowd of people and start shooting a gun at them in the heart of the city. Shooting a seven-year-old girl in the process. Yeah. I mean, it's utterly shocking. Now, I mean, Sadi Khan, you know, <laughs> I'm delighted to talk about Sadi Khan. He's almost as bad as the chap who lives in California. But, yes. um, or he's worse. He's actually much worse than the chap who lives in California because he's, you know, he's responsible for certain things in our great yeah. city including crime and he has more and he has more control over our lives we can ignore the bloke in california we can't really ignore sadiq khan can we absolutely you don't have to switch on netflix um but sadiq khan you know if you examine his his time as mayor he's been an utter failure Mm. serious crime is up from i think seven hundred and forty thousand incidents when he took over in 2015 to nine hundred and ten thousand last year um that's a 30% increase in serious crime. Uh, the TfL doesn't work properly. Fares have gone up dramatically. Council taxes have gone up. Last year, uh, sort of before inflation struck the country, council taxes went up 9%. He's put them up by another 10%. Mm. He increased the congestion charge from £11 to £15. That's nearly a 40% increase in, in charging. Then he's rolled out ULEs mm. right across... Greater London, that's £12.50 for every trip that every white van driver makes, every working class individual makes. 
in their much-hated cars. He's shut down roads. He's made it impossible to get around London. He is an utter disaster. But, of course, the most eye-catching thing right now, and right, rightly so, is this massive increase in crime. Mm. And the thing he's fretting about most is rejoining the European Union, which is absolutely nothing to do with his bag of responsibility. Mm. It's an extraordinary thing. And I'm sorry, and I'm sorry to, to bring it all back to sort of having control of our own borders. But, you know, we know about the Albanian drug problem. We know about the Albanian mafia who seems to have muscled into this country, as they have many European countries, with distribution networks for cocaine and marijuana. We find out this weekend, because of this drive-by shooting, that the connection to uh, the funeral uh, is a bloke who is a convicted member of the Colombian Carly drug cartel, who happens to be living in North London. Um, and apparently, something that's been discovered over the course of investigating this story uh, is that the Home Office have done away with any visa requirements for people coming here from Colombia. Now, I've got absolutely Great. nothing against people coming from <laughs> Colombia, but, I mean, if they are, um, you know, organised criminals working for organised drug cartels, you might think we wouldn't say you can come to Britain. Uh, absolutely. And, and you said it... Uh, in your opening statements, you know, we've got a complete breakdown across all public sectors, including, of course, policing and crime. Right. And then what happens to criminals once they're caught? Even the judicial system is failing to function. You know, we had strikes from barristers in the autumn last year, and that hasn't gone away. That's, a, that's another uh, sort of ugly head that could be raised again. Um, I mean, it is an utter tragedy. I look across the United Kingdom right now, and very little seems to be working. And the government's response to that is largely to put its head in the sand, tax us more, um, fail to address the problems, and we're just kind of going down a sinkhole. And I don't know, it's really depressing, Mike. You said you weren't depressed this morning. You could see plenty of good. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm not quite in the same boat with you. Well, I suppose what I meant to say was I don't see why this Monday is any different from any other bleeding Monday yeah, when true. you wake up <laughs> and true. you can't actually get anything done because people don't actually understand that their job is yeah. to do the job, not to just be appointed to do the job. We've got teachers saying, well, we can't do our job. Well, why not? Well, it's too difficult. Well, sorry. I mean, I don't really understand. You've got people working in the NHS saying we can't do our jobs. Too difficult. I you know, there seems to be yeah. this kind of public sector malaise going on at the moment where people who voluntarily um, apply for jobs, get those jobs, get quite well paid for some of those jobs, but then turn around and say, um, well, we don't like the conditions and we don't like the pay. We'd like more money uh, and we'd like better conditions. Well, I mean, I dare say you would. You know, you might turn around and say, I'd like a better looking girlfriend or a nicer looking car, you know, or I'd like a bigger house. You can't just have everything you want. We seem to have this society now where people are going... Well, why can't I have something better? Well, you can't. Know. You, can't, I, you just is, can't. It is. I, I, I do have sympathy for some of the striking public sector work, workers. Not so much the rail um, uh, strikes no. now. I, initially, I thought that they, they were justified. But I think Mick Lynch has gone far too far. He's made life miserable for businesses, damaged the economy, and gone on some kind of political ideological crusade. But, you know, the Royal College of Nurses is the first time they've striked ever in their 100-year history. And you've got Steve Barclay now, the Secretary of State for Health, saying, you know, please give me good arguments for why I can convince the Treasury to increase your pay. I don't know if you saw that, Mike. Yeah. It's utterly hilarious. You've got a Secretary of State imploring public sector workers to give him the intellectual ammunition he needs to get them a, pay, a wage rise. Yeah. What he needs to do is march into Jeremy Hunt's office and say, deal with this. Mm. And, you know, there are a multitude of ways, by the way, that this can be dealt with, uh, apart from just pay rises. You for example, 
and very importantly, you know, they should remove tax uh, for anyone in this country up to twenty thousand pounds a year. It's got to, you know, it's got to pay to work. And these people, a lot of these people, and I feel particularly sorry for the ambulance drivers. You know, the starting wage for an ambulance driver, and remember, they have to drive their vehicles extremely competently, often deliver care, at, you know, at the first point of an emergency. The starting pay is twenty-two thousand a year, and the average pay is twenty-eight thousand a year. Yes, I mean that is below the median wage in the country. Yeah. So I've got sympathy for them striking, but Steve Barclay needs to get round a table and, if necessary, drag that man Jeremy Hunt from number eleven with him. Yeah. And do a deal with these people, for God's sake, get on with it. Yes. Um, but why can't they also? I mean, you run businesses all your life, Ben. Um, reasonably successfully. I don't want to over over um, compliment you, but the point is this: if you've got a business and uh, you make the money work as efficiently as possible, what you don't do is give loads and loads of the money to people in your business who don't do anything, like the pen pushers in the NHS, like you know the forty odd percent of people who are not clinicians, the people who are working probably from home in many cases. Uh, filling out forms, asking questions, you know, making sure people are properly, you know, advised of the HR rules this week and making sure that, you know, um, uh, there are plenty of procedures being put into place for all sorts of things to stop the business from actually operating. These are the people who should have the money withdrawn so that it can be given to those, perhaps like the ambulance uh, drivers and the paramedics, who need it. Well, absolutely right. I mean, we've got a system that has been hijacked by bureaucracy. A system which puts gender uh, d- d- debates on gender and um, unconscious bias yeah. and education on critical race theory ahead of the actual functioning of the organizations themselves. And even, by the way, the private sector is being impacted quite severely by this. We have something called environmental, social and governance policies that virtually every business needs to adopt. It's mm. a kind of gray area, precisely what it means. But effectively, it's the corporate equivalent of woke. Mm. So you have to be... Um, you know, promoting uh, not just you're not just the guardian of the assets of your shareholders and the promotion of your employees and shareholders interests. You now have to look after the communities in which you operate. You need to be putting stuff back into them. You need to be aware of your environmental footprint. You need to be reporting on it and a whole host of other things that just constrain your ability to make money. And now is not the time when we are in such straightened economic times. Now is not the time to be foisting more regulations on business. Funny enough, just, you know, just finishing off on the private sector, that kind of regulatory burden helps big businesses because it prevents small businesses from ever really succeeding. It's the small businesses who get trashed. It's a bit like the working class are the ones that really pick up the tab for regressive taxes like new layers, increase in tube fares and so on. It's the working class that get hit. Mm. And with all these extra regulatory burdens, it's small businesses that get hit. The big businesses like it because it keeps competition away. And I think there is an unhealthy relationship between the Tory party and big business. And there's a, there, there's a preparedness by the Tory party effectively to follow big businesses' diktat, mm. one of which, and I'm moving on, but one of which is cheap, unskilled immigration. Yes. Again, that suits businesses. You know, we've had a collapse in productivity in the United Kingdom over the last 12, 13 years. Because we've had unbridled immigration. People say, you know, the, 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 the Tory party needs to let immigrants in so that businesses can recover. My goodness, we had net immigration of over 500,000, yeah. the biggest oh, figure ever 
But, you but know, of course, we'll come back to this. We've got to take a small break. But, you know, of course, the NHS argues that they haven't got enough people working there because all of the immigration that came in during break, during uh, the European Union uh, and, and the years that we were in it uh, have now all left, which is, they can't both be true. Anyway, we'll come back. Ben Habib is talking to his former MEP, Chairman of Brexit Watch. We've got to talk about Keir Starmer. We've got to talk about the teacher strikes as well. This is Talk TV. Online on DAB+, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Ben Habib, uh, who is, of course, former MEP chairman uh, of Brexit Watch. Lots going on uh, in the political world. We've got uh, Prime Minister's questions back. We've got, of course, the whole Andrew Bridgen, Matt Hancock situation going on. Uh, we're not going to get into that right here this morning. But let's talk a bit about uh, the NHS and the way the Labour Party seems to have shifted, Ben, uh, because we've got Keir Starmer talking about the NHS now having to reform. Let's have a look at this. You will always have, whether it's the NHS or any other public service, people say, well, don't do it, it's always been done this way. They're nearly always wrong. Of course there will be you know, challenges whenever you reform something, but frankly, if you don't reform the NHS, then I fear it will die. And I'm just looking at Trevor Kavanagh's column in The Sun this morning in which he uh, points out that Rishi Sunak's about to give a new job out uh, and it's going to be to somebody who might be loosely called a woke czar uh, and apparently might be going to a guy called Professor Arif Ahmed. I don't know if you know him, Ben, but uh, it, turns out, it turns out that uh, according to figures that have been produced for, for the sort of uh, uh, the woke watch, if you like, something like 800 um, uh, EDI officers, that means um, equality, diversity and inclusion officers, are in the NHS at a cost of £40 million. You know, when people say to me, you know, we're short of cash in the NHS, I go, well, there's £40 million quid you could get straight away. Just get rid of them. Yeah, I mean, and you count the pennies the plans look after themselves. Mm. themselves. And in this context, sadly, £40 million is pennies. In, you know, it's a drop in the ocean compared to what we spend on the NHS, which, by the way, last year um, was... 192 billion pounds, 10% of GDP, yeah. an absolute staggering amount of money. It's interesting to see the Labour Party pivot away from their constant demand to spend more money on the NHS yeah. towards a, a more sensible approach of requiring reform. But if you then examine what Keir Starmer says in terms of reform, actually, it is a sticking plaster over a gaping wound. His first idea is that you nationalise GPs. And presumably the notion behind that is somehow the public sector is going to run GPs any better than they're being run at the moment because you're not going to get more GPs just by nationalising them. And, um, and I think he's fundamentally mistaken. The public sector demonstrably can't run anything properly. So that's not going to help. And then his other thing is self-referrals. So instead of um, going via a GP to see a specialist, you would have the the ability to you know do a Google search, find out what's wrong with yourself, and yeah. then go and refer yourself to a specialist. But that to me sounds like a recipe for well, disaster. I mean, you, you might imagine? as well just you might as well just start operating on yourself, man. You know, I've got an ingrown toenail, but but I mean, I've said this for a long time. We you know we've got an NHS that would rather not treat anybody because they, they it sort of complicates their day. They'd rather you didn't actually turn up at a hospital or a GP surgery because well, that's you know, what they're now saying. That makes they? life a bit, a bit too. Yeah. difficult you know same with the police we'd rather you didn't actually call us instead just go online and register your crime you'll get a crime number back by email you know don't bother us with actual you know facts or information about criminals because we haven't really got time to deal with all that same with the post office you know don't bother sending any post because we can't deliver it you know i mean we've entered this kind of weird nether world where nobody in the public sector yeah. does what they're paid to do it, it is it is bizarre you know and going back to the nhs 
there's no way that Keir Starmer can begin to fix the NHS with the sticking plasters that he's got. Mm. And the Tories are the same, by the way. You know, Matt Hancock, I remember hearing Matt Hancock back in 2018 saying that they, their revolutionary approach to improving the NHS will be virtual diagnosis. So yeah. you'd get online and you'd be able to speak to some kind of online doctor and you wouldn't have to go to the G. But that was that was five years ago and it hasn't happened. Right. And again, they're trotting that same line out. They're not going to get, they're not going to sort this problem out. And when we get to 2024 and we're in election mode again, it might come sooner than that, but when we're back in election mode again, the whole Tory line for winning the next election is going to be we know we're really awful but the other lot are even yeah. worse vote for us again i, mean, it's not I a can great... just see that being trotted out <laughs> i mean you do hearken back to the days of the satchies and you know labor isn't working and those kind of proper slogans that actually meant, meant something and actually had a bit of an ideology behind them there is no ideology behind this government uh, aside from staggering from one sort of lamppost to another holding on for grim life as the you know as the tornado whips down the street and hurls them up in the air you know and they really don't seem to have a clue about all of the things that people care about one how much money they're having to pay for their energy and their electricity and we keep being told by Ofgem the people who are supposed to be looking after the consumers well we're sorry we can't reduce the price um, of your energy despite the fact that natural gas prices have plummeted and they're at some of their lowest levels for two years we can't reduce the price of energy because we have to subsidise renewables because we have to save the planet well you know sorry yeah. get stuffed you know give us a break let people uh, uh, have affordable bills that they can afford to pay let them drive cars that they can afford to drive you know this business in scotland is just the latest oh, kind of outbreak utter, of lunacy. utter lunacy right and you know at what point will our so-called leaders actually understand that people care about those two things and the levels of immigration coming into this country. Rishi Sunak stood up in Parliament and told us that he was going to stop the illegal crossings from the Channel. Well, he hasn't done it yet. And there's no, more. No, it's been a couple of weeks. Yeah, and even <laughs> more, happened. even more hotels being commandeered by the day uh, to to put yeah. these asylum seekers in. It's unbelievable. There was a village, uh, the name of which is Casey at the moment, but a village of 500 people that were taking 400 refugees, yeah. uh, illegal migrants rather, yeah. into a hotel. I mean, what are they thinking? Do they not give a... Uh, do they care about the social fabric of the country? Can you imagine what that's going to do for that village? Yeah. It's going to be swamped with people who are potentially antipathetic to it. Uh, I just don't understand what they're up to. But you've hit the nail on the head. It's the absence of an ideology. You know, the Conservative Party became a phenomenal election-winning machine. Mm. And the way that it did that was to sweep up into its... Uh, into its so-called ide ideology, a whole mismatch of different views and just to occupy that ground so that no one could uh, campaign against them successfully. But in doing so, they've got a party which actually has no particular belief system around which they can't hang the construction of any policies. No. They're, not, they're, not, they're not directed by their ideology and how to s sort things out. And they actually think that if they say they're going to sort out the illegal uh, migrants coming across the channel. Well, that's enough. Mm. The electorate will buy it. It'll play the next 24, 48 hour news cycle and we'll come up with uh, some other rubbish. 
you know, to keep the electorate satisfied. And that might, and that might have been true. A couple of years ago, that might have been true. But we've now been through that particular wash cycle and we've come out the other side <laughs> of it and we're still yeah. filthy, I'm afraid. And I speak, uh, obviously, uh, not literally. Um, and so we're not going to buy it anymore. Nobody's going to buy it. There is not one single individual in this country that buys it. We know uh, what they've promised in the past. We know they haven't delivered any of it. And we know that they don't seem to have a clue about how to stop it. They haven't. We desperately need a new political force in this country. We desperately need political reform. You know, we talk about reform of the NHS and the public sector. We're not going to get a proper operating public sector or indeed an economy until we first have political reform. And I know that's not at the top of everyone's head, but the first past the post system, which guarantees you either get the Tory party or the Labour party is going to condemn this mm. country. Yeah. We are in, uh, the oh. trajectory for this country is not good and yeah. we need we need substantial change. And isn't it ironic I'll finish on this point. Isn't it ironic that we are busy now describing uh, our lack of kind of leadership and the politicians that we've got not being particularly idealistic and in fact being the, from the managerial class. Well, I wish they were from the managerial classes. At least they'd know how to manage the business. But these people don't yeah. seem to even know how to do that. You know, this is the worst. No. If this Britain was a UK PLC, it's the worst managed business in history. They're not. They're, these people aren't even technocrats. They couldn't organise a piss up in a brewery. That's yeah. why I don't buy the conspiracy theories, mm. by the way. Yeah. You know, people talk about the oh, World Economic Forum. And so, I, I, they don't have the brain power <laughs> and wherewithal to uh, give effect to a conspiracy. They're really not that clever. These are people <laughs> that get caught out fiddling their expenses, for heaven's sake. You know, yeah. I mean, it's really not exactly, um, you know, politics, you know, 500. Anyway, listen, Ben, good to see you. Nice to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Ben Habib there uh, talking about the dearth. Uh, of ideology, the dearth of ideas, the dearth of really anything approaching a proper manifesto for change or a manifesto that will work or a manifesto that will get anybody elected. Seems extraordinary. And one of the biggest problems we've got right now in society, and we're about to talk about it, is the now violent society that we all have to live in. The fact that you really don't know whether you're in Penzance or whether you're in... Um, Timbuktu or whether you are in uh, Macrahanish up in Scotland or whether you're in you know the darkest depths of Cardiff or somewhere on the east coast of um, Hull you just don't know whether when you get out of your car somebody's going to whack you over the head steal it or steal your watch or take your money or shoot you when you're at a funeral drive-by shootings in Euston London Saturday afternoon it turns out there's connections to Colombian drug cartels as well what is going on exactly? We'll talk uh, to Mike Neville, who is, of course, a former uh, police detective in the Metropolitan Police. We'll find out from him just how we've managed to let so many drug gangs into Britain to do their business on a day-to-day -day basis. When did that happen? And how did it happen? That's coming next on Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Peter Hitchens coming up at 11 o'clock. He's got lots to talk to us about, including, of course, the drug use uh, that has ruined so many young lives and the drug use uh, that has caused so many young people and maybe some slightly older people to sort of lose touch with reality, to lose their brains. He'll be talking specifically about the effects that drugs have had on one particular individual who's been in the news later, lately. He'll also be talking about Sir Francis Drake and why... This ridiculous story about how a school in South East London changed its name uh, from the Sir Francis Drake School to something completely anodyne and ridiculous because they thought that he was connected with slavery and therefore that was a terrible thing. He'll explain why that is not a terrible thing. But how about this for a headline? 
uh, in the Daily Mail this morning. Was a violent Colombian drug cartel behind the drive-by shooting that wounded six? And then there's a graphic which only the Daily Mail can do uh, in the way that they do them. Dubs of peace released and then chaos breaks out. Picture of a car uh, around 1.30pm on Saturday. Mourners gathered uh, outside a church, the Aloysius Roman Catholic Church on Phoenix Road, after celebrating a requiem mass in memory of British Colombian cancer victim Sarah Sanchez and her mother. The girl uh, who had cancer was 20 years of age. Her mother was 50. Uh, They were both um, connected to a man uh, who has been known and a convicted member of the Cali drug cartel in Colombia, right? Now, I didn't know that there was a Colombian drug connection going on, perhaps, in London. Um, We've been told about the Albanian drug gangs, about the mafia. We know that uh, all sorts of things have been going on uh, in the world of Drugs, not just in London, not just in Manchester, not just in Leeds, not just in Liverpool, not just in Glasgow, but everywhere. If you live in a small town in England, you will know there's a drug problem. If you've got teenage children, you will know there's a drug problem. If you've got any kind of eyes and ears, everywhere you go, you can smell uh, marijuana. You can see drug deals being done. Let's talk to Mike Neville now, former Metropolitan Police detective, because I think when it gets to the point where people are being shot in broad daylight by someone in a car spraying a crowd of people... And he doesn't even get stopped. There has been an arrest in the case, Mike, so we can't get into too much detail, obviously, as you know. Um, but it's an extraordinary situation, isn't it, to find out, as I did this weekend, I had no idea that we had people from the Colombian drug cartels swanning around London. It's quite incredible, Mike, isn't it? And I think it all comes back to your sort of last guest about the, the broken Britain, that mm. it's just a complete mess that we've allowed uncontrolled immigration and, and somehow naively thought that everybody who'd arrive in these shores would be uh, wholesome and good and, and possibly a, a, a doctor or a nurse who wants to treat us. Yeah. Uh, and we've got a whole series of uh, foreign nationals who are far better organised, I think, than the police, you know, the Colombian dr- uh, gangs, the uh, Albanian gangs. Uh, and it's all over the country, as you said. I mean, up at Liverpool in particular has got a bad debt. Uh, right. You know, we had Olivia, the young uh, nine-year-old girl, uh, shot, killed in her own home. Uh, recently, uh, last month, a, a young man was, or this month, a young man was sentenced for shooting a 15-year-old girl who was just stood at a, a, a bus shelter. And then, of course, we had the shooting uh, on Christmas Day. So we've got the police uh, running round, and, and in some cases, you know, I'm, I can be critical of the police, but the, the Met have done a particularly good thing. They've driven uh, gun crime down in London. The problem, of course, it's a bit like a balloon. You jump on one end and out it comes at the other. And you've got, as you said, shootings all over the country. It's probably driven by this county lines where, you know, if it's difficult to deal drugs in in London or wherever or have firearms, you simply take them elsewhere. Uh, And there is no uh, national strategy. You've got 43 police forces uh, doing their own thing. Uh, And it's just... It's terrible. It's it's a disaster for people when you can't even feel safe in your own home or going to church to a funeral or standing at a bus stop. It, it's just gone crazy. Yeah, it really has. And it seems to me um, that the Metropolitan Police, uh, under special measures, as many police services currently are, um, doesn't really have a clue about what to do. It's almost as though the genie's out of the bottle, Mike, and now they don't know how to put it back in. Well, the Met are, are doing some. They are doing some drugs raid. There is some level of activity against these gangs, but it's almost out of control. You know, for every gun you seize, the how many more are, are on the streets? How many knives are on the streets? And and what you have, I'm not going to mention the case, but one of the cases that's happened recently, I, I saw that the, the it was all over uh, social media that the uh, the man who'd been arrested 
had all, already several convictions for firearms and mm. the like. And of course, he's out on the streets. Why is he out on the streets? Because we give the courts give ridiculous sentences. And Albanians and Colombians, they must come to this country and laugh at the kid gloves they're, to, huh. they're you know that they're, they're to, treated with. And of course, when they get to court, they must laugh at the sentences because mm. in Colombia, I'm sure you've been locked away for a thousand years and you've been never seen again. Yeah. But in his country, it's a ten bob fine, uh, do some community service if you fancy it, and, and on your way you go. And when you get into prison, there's more drugs in there than there are on the outside, and you can have a party every Saturday night, and nobody gives a stuff. It is absolutely appalling, and the public see this. And it's the loss of confidence in everything, isn't it? So you don't feel safe in the street. You don't feel confident that if somebody gets arrested, they'll they'll be punished properly. And if they do get punished, they'll be out and about before you know it. So why give evidence? Because if you know the drug dealer is going to be out in eighteen months' time, and all his mates know about it, they're going to come and burn yeah. your house down. Yes. So it's all the. I think it's a it's a whole series of factors that brought this about. It, this doesn't happen, does it, in one year? This has been 20 years, and oh, it's been sure. described. Absolutely. Madness. And also, I mean, oh. have we gone beyond now the point? I mean, we used to have these conversations when I started working in radio, um, you know, 14, 15 years ago, about should we legalise cannabis, should we legalise drugs? You know, we'd have these very, uh, you know, fulsome and uh, very interesting intellectual debates about it. I mean, I don't think that, that, that bus has now left the terminal, hasn't it? You know, the ship has left the port. There is no point in even having that conversation because drugs are now so endemic in our society into every every single aspect of it even in little towns that i visit down in uh, sussex and kent nowadays there's a you know there's a turkish barbers in the middle of the high street and you kind of go there's nobody in there what's that for and you kind of go in you can see it everywhere you go you know my kids are at school there are pe- there are kids doing drugs everybody knows that there are drugs everywhere i mean is there any point in legalizing it is there any point in not legalizing it well, one of the best comments I ever made, I mean, the legalistic term is that they're called control drugs, mm. you know, under the Misuse of Drugs Act. But exactly controlled by whom? They're, not, they're certainly not controlled by the government, are they? No. And I know you've got Peter Hitchens on, and he's a big advocate for, for smashing it. Yeah. And there are only, in my view, there remain only two solutions to this. And at the moment, the solution is halfway house rubbish. Mm. You should either smash it, you know, you'd be like Singapore, you know, execute people if yeah. they're going to sell drugs and whatever or you legalise it. Now, I would go with the, the latter. I'd try that. It's like when they said they'd open the pubs all day and we said, oh, everybody be drunk, no mm. one a bit work. But, of course, me and you, we've got to go to work so we don't get drunk. There's a few idiots who do these things yeah. and kill themselves. And up to a point, I'm happy to go along with that. And, and as long as you don't damage anybody else. At the moment... What you have with drugs is there's a massive profit margin mm. uh, for drug dealers with little risk of ever yeah. being caught. And if you're a user, the, the, the problem comes, you, the value of the drugs is so high, you have to steal or mug or murder or kill or whatever else you have to do to make money yeah. to buy these drugs, which really cost pennies to produce. Yeah. No, I, I personally, and I, I know it's radical, I'd, I'd let them have what they, what they liked. And it's a bit boring. These middle-class folk, they, they, they get excited about approaching a dodgy drug dealer. I had a case where, you know, a guy I used to get information from, he used to sell anodine tablets as ecstasy to middle-class white fools who then went back and bought more because it was so exciting to speak to this, uh, you know, big big raster guy. Right. So 
it just that's part of the problem. You know, let them have it's ridiculous. Legalize it. Let yeah. them have what they want, and let the community live in in some kind of better safety. To be honest, I can't imagine that it would get any worse than it is now. You know, because at the moment there are places that you just can't go. When we've only just got over the, as you say, the shooting of the little nine-year-old in Liverpool, and then the Christmas Eve killing of another young woman in a sitting outside a pub in Liverpool. Uh, now we've got this uh, drive-by shooting. Uh, we've got people being stabbed constantly. There's a lot more gun incidents than there used to be. It's obviously a lot easier to get a gun than it used to be. Um, and we basically sort of are where we are, aren't we? And, and as, as long as you say... Uh, and I, the other um, the piece I was reading over the weekend about this character who's connected to the two women whose funeral it was, uh, when he was apparently arrested and pulled up in a house in London, they found something like £100 million worth of crack cocaine and heroin in the house. And you go, well, that's not a very small operation, is it? No, it is. It, it is. And uh, this is, needs a long-term look by the... You know, but we're not going to get it, are we? Because politicians are concerned with, you know, the next five years, can they get in? Can they get a minister's position? Can they get some power and money? And they're not going to look at something that's going to take five, 10, 20 years to solve. And so you, if you look at the police force, for example, in my view, and I'll keep saying this, They've recruited the wrong people. They're full of students. They used to recruit ex-soldiers who were a bit robust, who knew that they had to do night duty, and whose mum didn't turn up at the police station saying it's time for them to go home. So the whole police force, the senior officers, need to be looked at. Stop worrying about diversity and, and woke and whatever else. Start worrying about how much crime there is and how frightened the people are to go on the streets. Then we need to grip the court, the CPS and the courts, make sure villainy goes to prison when they do uh, wicked things. We need to be radicals. Stop doing the same stupid things about drugs. Mm. We either crack down or we legalise it. or that, That's it. We don't make some these these decisions. Likewise with gun crime, we have some national police strategy. We have a national police squad. As I say, the Met have done some good. What good? What can we learn? How can we smash down on this? And, of course, we stop people just entering this country willy-nilly mm. uh, who might be the most nice people in the world but who also could be the worst drug dealers, killers, murderers, yeah. and we make people feel safe. The government's job is to make this country safe, and they're utterly failing. Mm. And I, I say it's all the major parties. There's none of them offer any uh, better solution. As the gentleman, get, the guest said beforehand, if you keep voting for the same, you, you're going to keep getting the yeah. same. We've had Labour, Liberals and Conservatives in charge of this country in the last 20 years. And none of them have made it better. So anybody who thinks they will do must be slightly crazy in my view. Yeah, but it's think, not good. You're absolutely right. Mike, listen, uh, it's a great uh, talk you've just given us. I'm sorry the message is not a bit more positive, but we are where we are. And in the end, we need to get out of where we are before more people die, before more innocent children get shot, before more innocent people get absolutely and utterly uh, lives ruined by these scumbag drug gangs. It's that simple, isn't it? This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on this beautiful Monday morning. Well, I say beautiful. Uh, it's only beautiful because we're here uh, to cheer you up and try and bring you uh, joy and great news. Uh, and we're still looking for some at the moment, but we will, I'm sure, get some for you before the end of the show. Uh, Peter Hitchens joins me in this hour uh, after an exhausting weekend of... Uh, finding that there are more and more things wrong with this country than there should be. Uh, we've been talking in the first hour, of course, about the drug business and how awful it is that we can now say, uh, with something other than pride, that, that we have had our own drive-by shooting on a Saturday afternoon in the middle of central London, very close to Euston Station, where a seven-year-old girl is amongst those uh, fighting. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...for her life as a result, and there seems to be some kind of connection to the Colombian drug cartels which is slightly confusing because I didn't know the Colombian drug cartels were operating in Britain, but apparently they are. We thought all the drug business in Britain was run by Albanians, but apparently uh, we weren't entirely correct about that. We'll talk about that, but we'll also talk about uh, the two ends of the drug business, not simply this, the people that, that, that ship it in by the hundreds of millions of pounds, but also uh, the people that sell it on an individual basis to a lot of individuals, and one individual in particular that Peter wrote about. And we did say we were going to try to get through the show without mentioning this particular individual who lives in California uh, with his wife and his two children, but I'm afraid it's going to be a bit impossible. Peter, very good. Let's not name him. Let's not name him. Let's not name him. But as you say, he is a California resident. Yes. uh, Author of of a major bestseller. Yeah, uh, a new book. Yeah, busy, very busy on television. And one of the things which he has revealed in this book is that he... Uh, is beyond doubt by his own by his own confession in in publications under his own name, which he's volunteered for. Uh, he's beyond doubt a past user of illegal drugs, yes. particularly and, mar- marijuana and, and class A drugs as well. Well, I don't. I, I, you come up against here a really bad thing. This classification of drugs as A, B, and C has actually always been designed to make marijuana look less bad than it is. Mm. Uh, the idea that somehow it's safer, softer less of a problem than the, the bogeyman mm. drugs of, of LSD, uh, cocaine, heroin, is a fantasy, mm. absolutely increasingly not true. And over and over again, whenever I write about this, one, this happens, and it, and, it, and it happened even far more so to my friend Patrick Coburn when he wrote about what happened to his son Henry yeah. in, in the book Henry's Demons. People tell you of horrible experiences of friends of theirs or even their own mm. family have had of a young man, it's usually young men who yeah. become seriously mentally ill yeah. after thinking, Often psychotic, thinking right? that marijuana was a safe, soft drug and finding out that it is the reverse of that. It doesn't kill, uh, or at least not very often, but what it does do, uh, or what it is very strongly correlated with, is mental illness of a particularly severe and incurable kind. 
And here we have uh, somebody who could quite easily still, I suppose, in theory, become head of state of this country and certainly was in line for that, mm. saying that during his time at school and in much of the rest of his life, he's been using this drug. Mm. And I don't know uh, any more detail than he's provided about this, but I would, I would, I would say, first of all, what did his police protection squad know about it? Mm. And if they knew about it, what did they do right. about it? Uh, have we been told? And isn't it an issue? If the and were uh, they if, if a member, if a member of the, way? if a member of the family which provides the head of state, which is which is given special protection from danger and crime, uh, does not himself abide by the law of the land, uh, what is the implication of that? Mm. Uh, if, if if any other law apart from the law against marijuana had been broken, wouldn't there be an outcry? I'm just astonished by how little attention has been given to this confession. Yeah. And it, it, it's it's as recent, I think, as two and a half years ago in the in the in the book, the most the most recent confession of use of marijuana mm. is, is 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 that that I, I don't know whether anything's happened happened since, but it's plainly not something that he he just did for a short while as a no as a well the as other schoolboy matter arising is whether or not it's still an ongoing situation whether well, there's yes, still because he lives in California where smoking dope is legalized it's legal in the state terms but it's not legal under federal law no it's not but and what i mean is well, that's a technical point which of course might affect his future um, immigration applications it might do we don't it, know but it probably won't but what it might do is inhibit her ambitions uh, for the white house which we're told that there are but the interesting thing for me is that when the sun wrote the front, the front page headline that he had smoked weed and done cocaine, the general response that I got from people was, well, so what? Doesn't everybody? Well, there's the thing. And that wasn't news. But apparently. he isn't everybody. Uh, actually, everybody doesn't. Mm. Uh, I, I think you'll find a large number of, of, of families managed to dissuade their young from doing it, and a large number of very sensible mm. young people uh, learn about what the, the, the problems are, and they stay well yeah. clear of it. I think, and, and quite a lot of people, I think, try it once, or maybe twice and never again. Mm. The number of regular habitual users of, uh, of marijuana in this country is, is still, I think, mercifully reasonably low. Uh, because if it were higher, I think we'd have many more instances mm. of, 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 so many instances of, 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 of mental illness correlated with it that uh, we would have a, a serious, such a serious problem over providing provision for such people that it would be a national crisis. So fortunately, it isn't as big as people say. But the other thing is, is here, you were talking about uh, the the existence of, uh, perhaps, of Colombian drug cartels in this country. The whole origin, there's a constant search for Mr. Big mm. in the drug, the great drug scandal of our yeah. times. Let's catch Mr. Big. Let's put some guy in, in jail in Mexico uh, or, 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 or like Colombia. And, and then you, you put them in jail. And... and isn't it odd? Nothing happens. Yeah. The reason why nothing happens is that, is that it's not Mr. Big you need to worry about. Mm. It's 10 million Mr. Small yeah. who in this country and in many European countries and in the United States give their money to drug dealers who then pass it on up the chain to the, to, to the cartels. The whole drug scandal, all the misery, the armed men, the crime, everything else that goes with it is financed by smug, self-satisfied people in this country who openly and happily break the law against drugs, and they think they're good. Mm. Actually, they're paying for evil. Yes. And it's extraordinary. And this endless search for Mr. Big, where Mr. Small lives on your street. Well, it's and one the, of police, the... the police yeah. won't touch him, right. even if he's not a prince 
of the royal yes. house. The police won't touch people. But who isn't it also interesting that the the, the the one thing that was tried uh, was to try and take on the kind of the woke youngsters of this country, the people who uh, detest drinking coffee unless it's fair trade coffee. You know, who will not uh, buy an avocado because it might have been flown here rather than something that was grown here. Yeah. But when you appeal to their better nature and say please don't buy cocaine because it's actually produced by slave-driven uh, individuals in, in very poor countries where the farmers are forced into making uh, cocaine out of coca leaves under pain of death. They don't care. No, and also they do. don't care. What do, what, do, what do they think the conditions are? The, the, the hundreds of, 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 of marijuana farms mm. in this country, who do they think is working in yeah. them and, and, and under what conditions? Yeah. But it's the one, they, they, they hate the big fast food chains, they hate the soft drink companies, they quite rightly hate the tobacco companies. Mm. But when it comes to this, uh, this extremely powerful greed lobby, and it is, it is very powerful, mm. and it, it lobbies constantly to be allowed to, to do this legally, uh, the, the people who claim to be righteous and good and eat nothing but vegan and, and, and check that their air is pure before they breathe it, they don't care. Mm. And it's complete hypocrisy and a complete anomaly, and it's not challenged. And I'm just astonished. Mm. Uh, again, here, here I am. Why aren't there other people, uh, loud voices in politics, the media, the churches, the academy, why aren't people all over the place saying, this is a danger, we need to fight against it. Why is there no more resistance yes, it's to very, it? It's, it's a very huge and it's successful. And they're, they're inches away from getting a majority in parliament for, for legalization. Yeah. And you know what legalization means? Legalization means open sale in Tesco's and, the, and, 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 and chemist shops and on the internet. Open sale, completely without any. And it also means advertising. We spent, what, 50 years in this country trying to stop the yeah. advertising of tobacco. Yeah. Uh, it, it took an amazingly long time, presumably because the government didn't want to lose the tax revenue, whatever it was. But we've now done that. And now it's we're very close to a position in which marijuana yeah. will be legal and advertised in this country. When it is, it, it, let's put it like this, there is a very strong suspicion that it is a major menace to health. Yeah. Well, uh, let me come back to that in a no moment. consistency got, here at all. Just got a bit of breaking news. Um, serving Metropolitan Police Officer David Carrick has pleaded guilty to 49 offences, including 24 counts of rape. We'll bring you more mm. on that story as uh, as it develops. But that's a Metropolitan Police uh, police Officer, a serving police officer, pleading guilty to 49 different offences. Dreadful business. Um, yeah, because I was in California, um, where my son lives, about two years ago now, I suppose. And I was quite taken aback at... Not only how much marijuana was clearly visible everywhere you went in terms of you could smell it literally everywhere yep. in L.A. We were in Hollywood. We went on Man's Chinese Theatre, did the whole thing, went to Malibu, went to, you know, all sorts of different parts of, of uh, that, that part of uh, California. Uh, but the thing that surprised me the most was the advertising, you know, billboards, huge billboards advertising not only um, and, and, and quite sort of sophisticated advertising, you know, beautiful young women smoking dope um, with a message, kind of funniness. There was a humour. Yeah. There was also as we went out, we went into Palm Desert at one point and there were huge billboards offering land for sale for the purposes of cultivating marijuana. And the biggest thing that shocked me was they had a sort of marijuana superstore, which was a building just off the San Diego freeway, which was about five stories high, and was there purely and simply to sell marijuana. All organic, no doubt. Yeah, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, no chemist. No, no I, I don't, it, has, it, has it come, it was part of, I think, Proposition 64, I think it was, which was the, which was the, the ballot uh, which, which brought about 
legalization in California, uh, that advertising would be involved. It was an immensely long proposition, but it was if you read it carefully, you could see advertising. But I wonder if TV advertising is, is, is included in that. But the other fascinating thing about this is the claim was always made by the legalizers, oh, well, if you make it legal, then we can control it. Mm. Uh, we'll, we'll keep down, we the, the, keep down the level. Uh, but, of course, but, of course, they will also tax it. And I think also, if you want, if you wanted, if you had wanted to buy illegal marijuana in California, you'd have had no mm. trouble at all because the the illegal gang-controlled markets continue to flourish because they sell at much lower prices because there's no tax, and also because they give people more of what they want, which is high strength. Mm. So, in fact, this this this, this idea that legalizing would uh, w- would make it safer was a complete fantasy and has been demonstrated mm. also in Canada, I have to say, to be a fantasy. And yet these people still keep mm. saying it, even though it's demonstrably not true. I mean, I suppose the argument in favour of legalisation is that you've already got a problem. If you can tax it and you can use that money for something good, like the school system or, in our case, the NHS, is it not worth the price that you pay? Because you're already, you've already got the problem. Why not at least get some money well, in ref- in return for it, if you like? But in this country, we cannot raise enough tax to pay for all the things that the government wants to do. That's why we borrow so heavily, yeah. and huge amounts of your tax and mine actually go on. This is the most infuriating thing about your tax bill. They go on paying the mm. interest on the money we've borrowed right. because we can't raise enough tax. The idea that if you if you tax marijuana, that, it, that we're suddenly going to have a huge pot of money for the NHS or whatever is is is, is piffle. It, it, it's well, we would have some, it, though, wouldn't you, we? No, no, it wouldn't make any difference. You, you, the governments overspend and they continue to overspend. It's a fantasy. The other thing is, legality is is irreversible. Once you've said this is legal, mm. you can't turn around ten years after and say, "Oh, terribly sorry, mm. we made a mistake." It's too late. Iran is, is, is the is the classic example of this. Iran is a country which, where alcohol used to be legal. They have tried with all the resources, secret police, terror, gallows, the rest of it, to try and stamp out alcohol mm. in, in Tehran ever since the Ayatollahs took over. Total failure. Mm. If you want to buy alcohol in Iran, uh, which I didn't when I was there, but my late brother who also went there did, you, you, you could have a bootleg around your place yeah. in about five minutes, and it's completely failed. And this is a, this is a terror state. Mm. They can't stop right. it. So if we decided, say, 10, 15 years since, oh, we've made a terrible mistake, the, 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 the mental hospitals are overflowing, the streets are full of people who are obviously mentally ill. Uh, the, 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 you can't rely anymore on anybody from school bus drivers to surgeons to, to, be, to be undoped. It's a disaster, which all these things will happen if we mm. legalize it. You won't be able to re-ban it. Right. Because even if you do, it won't be enforceable. It's an irreversible decision. And of all the moments for a country to be considering legalizing a drug, surely the moment when the evidence that it's strongly correlated with severe mental illness would be the moment Mm. at least pause. Right. Well, we're going to take a little pause here, and I'm going to leave you with a question to ponder, um, because those people who now say maybe we should legalize or consider legalizing marijuana are the same people that say if alcohol was invented now, it probably wouldn't be licensed and sold legally. Which is another question. But they're right, it wouldn't be. Yeah, but I mean, let's come back to that. Peter Hitchens is here. Uh, We'll be talking about that, plus the disappearing act of one Boris Johnson as a talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Peter Hitchens is here, uh, and we've been talking about the marijuana situation. So, I mean, there are those who would say, well, of course, you know, because your parents' generation and you're a parent and you've been drinking all your life, that's probably damaged you. Alcohol's just as bad. Is it? 
Yes, it is. It's terrible, but it's again, it's irreversible. It's mm. happened now. You've, you, we, we have in this in this country two legal poisons: alcohol and, and tobacco. Which, if they were introduced now, well, and we knew what we know about them at the time, they would uh, they, they would not be legalized. But they are legalized. It's it's it's, it's irreversible. Mm. Uh, it's it, this could never be an argument for legalizing a third dangerous poison. Mm. It just doesn't. It just doesn't make sense. A lot of people try and use it as one. Uh, but it isn't one. I personally think there was a great tragedy in this country in the 1980s uh, when the Thatcher government uh, began to destroy the very sensible licensing laws, which you doubtless remember, which made it difficult enough for people to get a drink that mm. it actually did uh, deter quite a lot of people from levels of drunkenness that are now common. Yes, you and that was, couldn't drink that was practical, and the, 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 it was a stupid thing. Uh, to dismantle those, and I remember being—I was—I uh, was at that time. I was, uh, I, I think, a defence correspondent. I had no column, I had mm. no platform, I had no broadcasting access. I sat there fuming and I was reading this stuff, alleged reports from Scotland saying, "Oh, we've introduced pilot projects. It hasn't made anything worse." And that's complete mm. rubbish. Yeah. And of course, it did make things worse, and we saw how much worse it made things. And there was no argument against it. And I think that was a great tragedy. Yeah. It just, it just, it was. Although it was I also do remember through. the days, particularly of when I was looking, driving around, looking to buy a house or something, and you'd get to some country pub, and they'd go, "Oh no, sorry, it's two o'clock," and you'd be like, "Right, so I can't have lunch or a drink. No, sorry. Uh, when can we do that then? Oh, half past five. Yeah, but it, and, it, and, I mean, it, it was a bit it, ridiculous. It was, but nobody as well. who really, really wanted a drink in those days was prevented from getting one. The absolute end, of, apart from all those clubs, right. uh, which people belong to, and the pubs which opened to a special knock on the yeah. window, uh, there was also the ultimate resort in those days, which has now been abolished, of course. You could get on a train yes. and go to the buffet. Do you club. remember the Chinese was, restaurant in um, Shaftesbury Avenue where they would serve you, after I think about 1am, they would serve you wine in a teapot? Uh, just well, that's interesting. I once had vodka in the teapot <laughs> in uh, in the Urals in, in the Soviet Union uh, for similar reasons. Yes. It tasted very yeah. strange, I have to say. Yeah, it doesn't seem right. It's yeah. a bit like when I was in India once and they poured the tea out of the pot and it had milk in it already in the pot. Ah, well, and it's the strangest looking thing I've ever seen. I was like, that's weird looking. Well, you wait and see how weird vodka looks. Yeah, the weird. Anyway, uh, let's talk about uh, the Boris Johnson disappearing <laughs> act that, yes. that we witnessed um, earlier on this week. This was a Grant Shapps escapade, wasn't it? And another, well, we, great, uh, another great sort of I British have, uh, triumph. We have to say that Mr Shapps says it's nothing to do with him. Well, of course. But there was this picture of him... And Al Johnson and the rocket, uh, which recently didn't go into, <laughs> go into orbit, uh, it was taken about a year ago. And in the middle of the picture, yeah. where else would he have been right. bulging away? It right. was our former prime minister, of Mr. Alexander Johnson. Yeah. But then suddenly, uh, last week before the rocket had its anomaly and failed, uh, this picture was published of Mr. Shapps mm. beaming all over his face, standing next to the rocket, and lo! In the middle of the picture, there was no Alexander de Feffel Boris Johnson. And it was a very amateurish manoeuvre, wasn't it? Because it didn't look as if they'd tried... I mean, I suppose even the most uh, clever photoshoppers might have had trouble moving them closer together, but they could have done something other than just have a great big gap. Well, it did, yeah, but there, it, it, it managed to survive on the internet for a short while, and then Mr Shapps uh, deleted the d deletion, <laughs> saying, nothing to do with me, 
So we, we have to accept that. Mm. that it's not, so who was it? It is very curious. Do you think, do you think it's possible that uh, that Al Johnson didn't want to be seen in a photograph with Grant Chaps? I don't think it's that, because I don't think yeah, there's, don't a, there's any picture. Well, I have to that, speculate. No, I think there's no picture that Boris Johnson doesn't want to be in. I think he wants to be in every picture at all times. Well, there you are. And then it is just one of those mysteries. Because it's been one of those weeks where there's been a bit of Johnson-related activity, where clearly his friends have been planting stories that he's looking for a safe seat. Uh, so that he will stand with Rishi Sunak rather than well, against him. Well, this thing works. This thing oh, look, works. there it is. You there can now is. see yeah, him appearing and disappearing. Yeah, it's on. brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah there he is. Uh, there, now you see him. Yeah, um, now in, you don't. In the doctored version, it does look as like some, some problem of personal freshness, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Yeah. But they've also presumably painted in the, the, prop, the, the window, the, the, the window yeah, properly as well. They've had to do that. Otherwise, it would have looked even more strange. Apparently, it is a, it, it initiated, and this is the other weird thing, which in, 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 in my mind is, is, is something even worse. It's it originally an official Downing Street picture because now uh, someone goes around with the Prime Minister all the time taking pictures of him. I mean, the only, I suppose the only way that Boris Johnson might have asked to be removed is because it did fail due to something I've never heard of before, not because I've never heard the word, but I've never heard it used in this way, an anomaly which uh, apparently makes it impossible to no, fire a rocket I think we're going properly. to be hearing the, 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 the expression anomaly quite, yes, quite a lot. Yes, it's a new one, isn't it? But it's very useful. It's good. So, so we've had, so this week we've had Boris Johnson might be standing in a safe seat. We've had Matthew Paris saying that if he stands anywhere near his seat, uh, or the one that he, where he yeah. lives, he'll stand against him, as he hates him that much. We've also had the return of Partygate as a result, because the enemies of Boris Johnson have been saying, oh, but don't you know that people were having sex at that party that he wasn't at? Mm. And you just go... Guys, can you just get over the obsession with Boris Johnson? No, I have to My say, firm belief is that the people of this country don't want him back. I have to say, well, maybe not, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bank on that. I have to say, the spectacle of a by-election in which Matthew Paris and Al Johnson stand against each other has a certain attraction. It and does. I, actually, it does. I think you're wrong. I think Johnson would win. Is you've got to remember the, I'm power, not saying, of, no, the power of I'm celebrity not you wouldn't win. on which he floats. Yeah. People have heard of him. No, I'm not saying I'm not saying he wouldn't. No, no, I don't. I don't mean to say he wouldn't win a by-election or win an election. What I'm saying, I don't want him back as prime minister. Is what I think. Well, I mean, it it doesn't seem in in a democracy. Do you ever get what you want? Uh, No, (laughs) I've never have. Doesn't actually seem to be the idea, does it? Not so far. In a democracy, you get told what to want. Yes, and then what you were told to want is what happens. Yes. Well, sometimes. Yeah. Um, it may even be that some point you will be told to want Johnson back. The other great uh, story this week, which you wrote about, France, Sir Francis Drake, yes. and how ludicrous that he should now be castigated and, and kind of vilified as a, as a cruel well, and nasty creature. I don't mind that. I mean, he, he, he did do terrible things. I mean, the, uh, there's, there's a great Irish resent, resentment of him because of a, a, an event on, on uh, Rathmines mm. Island. I think. But he, and undoubtedly, he could be a cruel and, and, and brutal person, and there isn't any question that he was involved in the slave trade. Mm. Uh, and I I would condemn all those things, but I don't think that you can at the same time uh, dismiss him from history as, as someone who wasn't uh, a great man. I, I don't like Oliver Cromwell either. I think that Cromwell, again, known for known for his massacres. Uh, I don't I, didn't, I don't like his politics. I don't like what he did. But the idea that he wasn't a great man mm. that we shouldn't remember him a substantial is figure, you could say, can't you? Yeah, I, and and that there were some things that uh, that Francis Drake did which were undoubtedly extremely good for this country. I think uh, if he, if he hadn't defeated the Armada, then the, the reign of the greatest 
uh, monarch this country ever had, probably the greatest head of government this country ever had, Elizabeth I, would have come to an end and we'd have been occupied mm. by Spanish troops. Would that have been good? Would you, would you have, I wouldn't have thought so. Would you have said, well, we could get Francis Drake in to defeat the Armada, but he's got this terrible record in the slave yeah. trade. So about, let's not have, let's I mean, get somebody who loses battles. And I, know, I mean, we haven't really got time to discuss this. Maybe we'll do this for next week. I mean, I don't know whether the Spanish are having the same um, sort of uh, ridiculous, uh, you know, approxisms of, of, of history because they're somehow finding themselves living in a country where lots of people went to South America and Central America, killed entire nations of people with disease and enslaved all sorts yeah. of uh, ancient, you know, civilizations. Are, are they having yeah, the same the, problem? The, the Victorian attitude towards the Spanish, uh, the Spanish Empire. In, in, in Latin America was of, of contempt and rage. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and they looked down on it very strongly. They said they, they, they believed the Spanish had behaved comparatively with us very badly. Yeah. And but are the Spanish it, it, looking it, into their history and doing this? Probably or? not. Well, I say in an age where in, in an age where we, we bow and scrape to Saudi Arabia, mm. uh, it seems to me we aren't in much of a position to complain about Sir Francis Drake. And bear this in mind as well. Twenty years hence, there may be people who want to name schools after Anthony Charles Lyndon Blair. Would you want your child well, to go to one of those? Now, it's funny you should say that, because guess who we're going to speak to next? John McTiernan, former Tony Blair advisor. Um, there are so many of them. There he, are. Need, he needed lots of advice. There are. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think because of Iraq, I think that may never happen. But you're not, you, you, Don't you may rule not it be out, wrong. is what I say. No. Well, I've never ruled out that they will somehow return as some kind of president of the United Kingdom. No, it's, it's a terrible thought. It's a bit worrying. And our friend in California may be playing into his hands. Oh. Uh. <laughs> but anyway but only um, accidentally no of course good to see you Peter Hitchens you uh, as good as brilliant as ever uh, his column of course not only now every Sunday in the Mail on Sunday but he also gives you a few bonuses during the week uh, in the Daily Mail so look out for those um, we will be talking about Keir Starmer and his newly formed view of the NHS which apparently means it should reform or die according to him this is Talk TV see it hear it think it Talk Radio and Talk TV Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Don't forget, Plank of the Week uh, tonight from 7 o'clock. We might even find you a clip to play if we can before the end of this show, but uh, that will be on uh, with myself. Kevin O'Sullivan also on there uh, as well. Uh, Amanda Devlin too. Uh, it was a very, very big show. Mark Saggers uh, also, our man uh, in the sporting booth. He was there too, uh, and he, in fact, gave us a couple of really, really good planks. And it might surprise you who ends up winning it. So don't think you know everything. After all, coming up in this hour, we're going to be joined by Adam Coleman, uh, who is, of course, our correspondent, one of our correspondents over the United States of America. He's been talking about the latest to do with the Biden story, uh, the classified files that have been found. We've got a little clip of Biden for you as well for your delectation. Uh, we'll take more of your calls as well, because we've been talking an awful lot this morning about net zero, about the taking away of gas boilers, but also uh, of the driving war that's going on, uh, being driven largely by an awful lot of our political masters. I mean, I say political masters, but I don't really mean our political masters because I don't see them that way. The whole point, I believe, of politics uh, is that we supposedly elect people to represent us. Those people will lead us in certain ways, but will also listen to us and will also do the things that we ask them to do. Now, obviously, there are lots of different views. There are lots of different people who represent different businesses and different interests. But at the end of the day, um, the bottom line for me uh, is that we, the people, are those who are the kind of... Um, uh, in, uh, inter, intermediaries, if you like, between uh, the people who can't speak for themselves and the people who can do something about it. So we will try as hard as we can 
uh, to try and influence uh, those people who make decisions about how we live. Um, Link says this, can any of your viewers or listeners point out any MP that is not signed up to this green eco-zealot cult and has spoken out stating it's just the largest grift the world has and will ever see? Well, I think there are plenty of politicians who don't necessarily go along with every single aspect of this net zero craziness. And we've seen this morning uh, from the report that's coming out in the Telegraph that Chris Skidmore MP uh, says that net zero represents a new era of opportunity uh, that risks being undermined, he says, by a lack of government ambition. I don't think it's a lack of government ambition. In fact, in some ways, the overreach from government in this area uh, is often too large, in my view. But let's talk to Gareth Bacon, who's Conservative MP for Orpington. We've spoken to him many times uh, on the phone before, not least about the expansion of the ULEZ zones in London and not least about the war on motorists. And I think, Gareth, without wishing to put words into your mouth, I would say that you probably fit the bill of somebody who's a bit more sensible about this whole net zero madness. Well, thank you, Mike. It's very kind of you to say so. Good morning. Brother. Yeah, good morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, let's talk a little bit, first of all, about um, the ULEZ expansion, because we've seen this morning that down in Sutton, the Lib Dem group of all people have actually said that they're going to stand up against Sadiq Khan's uh, movement and uh, against Sadiq Khan's suggestion. They're not actually going to let it happen there. Well, that's very interesting because the, uh, the Lib Dems... Uh, the Lib Dems on the London Assembly, who could have voted to stop this, voted in favour of it, as did every other political group mm. on the Assembly, apart from the Conservatives. Yeah. Um, and what we've got here is the Liberal Democrats testing the water, seeing that there's widespread opposition locally. And they're trying to face both ways on the same issue, mm. which is not an unlib Dem approach. To <laughs> no, I can uh, see I can see why you would say that. But nevertheless, for whatever reason, if it is stopped in Sutton, then that's a good thing, isn't it? Well, I'd like to know what grounds they have for stopping it, because um, I know that uh, there are several London boroughs, my own in Bromley being one of them, that are looking at the potential for a legal challenge uh, of it. Um, I've been informed by um, the government uh, or by government ministers that there is no planning requirement for the cameras to be put up. Mm. So the grounds for a borough to unilaterally stop it, I'm not clear on at the moment. I hope that they're right. I mean, if Sutton have found a way to do this, then I would encourage all other boroughs to do the same. Um, but I haven't heard from them. I've seen various press releases saying they're going to, they're not going to allow it. Yeah. But I think they've got the right to stop it. And Transport for London have been very bullish mm. about saying that they'd like to work with the boroughs. But if the boroughs aren't going to cooperate, they'll do it to them anyway. And they think they've got the power to do it. Yes, interesting you say that, because I did ask uh, the person we spoke to whether he uh, was aware of whether they could do it or what the legal challenge mm. might be or what the future might hold, and he didn't seem entirely sure. He was, it was a sort of suck-it-and-see kind of policy, and we'll, you know, we'll see yeah. what, what they do about it, because, like you say, one and I mentioned this too, one of the big rollouts is that they put loads and loads of cameras in, and if they start putting loads and loads of cameras in and start activating those cameras, then you're going to start seeing people getting fines on you. Well, you won't until August. Um, that's when the mayor wants it to, to roll out. Now, um, I would be very supportive of anything that slowed down the timescale at the very least, because we have a mayoral election in May 2024. Mm. I think the reason why the mayor, if you look at this ULES expansion and you look at the ones that happened before, both the introduction of the central London ultra emission zone and the expansion to the north and south circular, there was a very long lead in period before it happened. The lead in period now is a handful of months. And I think the reason why the mayor is rushing the timetable is so that it doesn't become an election issue. Mm. So if it comes out in August, the election is nine months later right. and it's kind of been and gone and it's fading into the memory. If it's delayed, then all of a sudden it becomes an election issue. Right. And I think the mayor's rushing it for that reason. Yes. Um, so anything that slows this down, I think, is good because then it gives people who are opposed to this 
the opportunity to boot him out in the elections in mm. May. And certainly there are plenty of areas like Sutton, which if you sort of categorise them as relatively low um, use in terms of public transport, because they don't yep. have, as, as he pointed out, they don't have the underground, they don't have the overground, yep. they don't really have much by way, they don't have a tram service, they really only have buses and they don't have mm. too many of those. So there's plenty of those types of ca uh, of council areas, aren't there, around the outskirts well, of London? Oh, I mean, my own uh, council is, is exactly that. Um, I mean, we've, we've had this conversation before. Yeah. Come on. You know, we, I mean, two thirds of my constituency is rural. If you look at a, an overhead map of my constituency, you, you see tons and tons of green. And there's, you know, there are buses. Um, the bus, ironically, uh, City Car has been cutting the buses in, in parts of my constituency. Um, and there are trains that go into central London, but there is, there's nothing in the way of tubes. Mm. Um, nearest tube station to where I'm sitting at the moment is, and I'm sitting in my constituency office, the nearest tube station is North Greenwich, right. um, which would be from here, about a half an hour drive. Right. So, you know, it we don't have... It defeats the object, doesn't it, really? Yes, it does. Um, you know, and, and simply saying lazily, as he does, that to other public transport alternatives to the private car, there aren't. Not where I am. Um, and, you know, it, it's simply not viable to say this and say, oh, well, I'm going to invest the money we raise on, on more public transport after the event. That yeah. takes years to provide. Right. In the meantime, you've, you've made life very, very difficult. Mm. huge numbers of people and how much of this um, expansion zone do you think has been factored in um, to Sadiq Khan's budget for next year because presumably there's a, a an amount of money that he wishes to raise well there is I mean the, the amount of money is, is sort of a moving target I mean there's various estimates um, but I, I made a speech in Westminster Hall uh, just before Christmas and it was uh, the, one of the figures that I created from the fines not from the charges so from people that don't pay it's been estimated by Churchill Insurance that it'd be close to £400 million a year. Yeah. So, you know, there's a very considerable amount of money that the mayor can raise here. And I'm completely convinced that's what it's about. Because yeah. if you look at the impact assessment that he himself commissioned, it says that it will have a negligible impact on air quality in outer London. So therefore, why do it if mm. it's not about air quality? It's got to be because he wants to raise money. Mm. The really insidious thing about this is that lots of the people that will get hit by this don't even live inside the Greater London boundary, so they have no say. They can't vote one way or the other. Right. Um, so at that debate, we had my colleagues from Watford, from Dartford, uh, from Runnymede and Weybridge, all constituencies outside Greater London, but all with constituents who are going to be very considerably impacted by this, all of them speaking out against it. So it's a very unpopular policy, um, and Sadiq Khan just doesn't seem to care. He's not no. listening to anyone. And he doesn't seem to have had much to say either about the uh, charming fact that London is now the most congested city in the entire world. You know, forget about Sao Paulo, forget about Tokyo, forget about, you know, uh, downtown Beijing. We are now the most congested place on the planet. I mean, that is shameful, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's incredible, really. I mean, he keeps issuing, Transport for London keep issuing private hire licences. Uh, now, most of those vehicles will be driving in central London, which is already massively congested because that's where most of their customers will come from. Yeah. They're competing for space. And because of his policies, uh, I mean, he's extended the um, cycling uh, enthusiasm of his predecessor. Uh, he's, made, he's taken that on a bit. He's, he's, there's more roads being sectioned off of bus lanes. There's more traffic coming everywhere. There's more traffic lights. As well as um, we've got black cabs uh, who obviously have always been in the city, but more private licenses as well. Um, so it's slowing the traffic down exponentially. Mm. I mean, driving in any part of London, really quite a horrible experience. But here in outer London, um, congestion is what it's always been, really. But the idea that this will help take congestion off the roads, it won't because there isn't an alternative. No. All well, what we know, 
Well, this is the thing. I mean, what if he talks about air pollution all the time and he obsesses about how he wants to make the air cleaner, but what we can prove to him by showing him why London is the most congested city in the world is that all of his plans so far have simply served to make money. They haven't served yeah. to make it less congested. If anything, London's more congested. And I was told, I think, probably two years ago, that there was something like 30,000 more cars in central London on any given day because of all of those private hire vehicles you talk about. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot in that. I mean, it is, it's also true to say that cars, as they become newer, are becoming less and less polluted. So in terms of air quality, it is improving. Um, but congestion will continue to rise when the public transport system is not as reliable as it needs to be. And part of the problem with the public transport system, particularly once you go outside the central zone, mm. is that it doesn't take you from A to B. Right. Um, you've got quite a long link in. So if I, if I were to... Uh, try to get to Westminster by public transport if the trains were down, it would take me something like two to two and a half hours. Mm. I live 12 miles from the House of Commons. It's not an efficient alternative. No. If I can't get on the train, I end up having to drive. And that's a horrible experience as well. Well, that's the other problem at the moment with uh, uh, all sorts of uh, strikes going on at any given moment. Uh, we discovered yesterday that out in West London, where we've got another studio, um, there was a strike which affected the Elizabeth Line, which meant the Elizabeth Line wasn't running. There was some union called Prospect that nobody had ever heard of who apparently had decided to down tools and said there were no trains. So you can't rely on the public transport system if that's going to happen on any given day. I mean, that's become increasingly so. And, you know, when Sadiq Khan was running for mayor for the first time in 2016, he made a big show of saying he was going to roll up his sleeves and get around the table with the unions and make sure there were zero days of strikes. I think he's got by far the worst record in terms of strikes of any of the oh, three mayors. Oh, he has. Mayors. Yeah. Well, he promised, did he, not, did he not promise there would be no more strikes on uh, TFL? Um, yep. And then uh, immediately broke it. <laughs> yep. and, there's, uh, and there's been loads. And it's getting to the point now where people aren't sure whether or not public transport is going to be reliable. And that's, mm. that's not a good place to be. No, absolutely not. So in terms of just generally speaking, Gareth, in your borough, obviously, but also others, um, can people who want to object to this continue to do so? Can they do something about it? They can certainly object. And I'm encouraging them to do that. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to make as much noise as I can. Uh, I asked a question in the House of Commons yesterday about this and uh, about potentially uh, asking the government to explore reducing Sadiq Khan's funding if you know as a last resort yeah. he refuses to listen to people and what I'm saying to people because I'm getting lots of in, in, lots coming into my inbox from both my constituents and from people outside London who've seen speeches and things that I've made to make their voices heard as loudly as they can mm. we've still got seven months until the mayor wants to introduce this um, so if he starts to see if he starts to believe that his own prospects are imperiled then he might change his mind on this. So I'm encouraging the local boroughs uh, who wish to to, um, to push with their legal action. Uh, I'd like to see the detail of what Sutton wants to do. I know uh, where my local borough is going. I know where Bexley and Hillingdon um, and, and others are looking to go. Um, so the boroughs can take legal action that way. But as many people as possible, making as much noise as possible, I think is very yeah. important. Well, we're certainly going to be doing that as well. So anything you need from us, we will be very happy to provide it. Gareth, thanks very much indeed. Gareth Bacon, Conservative MP for Orpington there, one of the areas affected uh, by this expansion that uh, Sadiq Khan wants to make of his own empire, effectively, because it's all about self-aggrandisement for him and making more money for him and making more money uh, for the coffers of the Sadiq Khan machine, uh, which runs London uh, like some kind of um, ridiculous dictatorship where nobody who lives in London gets any say as to what actually happens in it. 0344 499 1000. Colin says this, Mike, at minimum, before the government do anything, they must offer our own homeless and those living in damp housing a free hotel room. Why are we prioritising illegal immigrants above our own? It's a very good question. One which needs an answer, Colin. I can't give it to you. 
We'll try and get it from the government. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.